Part three, chapter seven, part one of Basil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madeline Brook. Basil by Wilkie Collins. Part three, chapter seven, part one. The next morning, Ralph never appeared. The day passed on, and I heard nothing. At last, when it was evening, a letter came from him. The letter informed me that my brother had written to Mr. Sherwin, simply asking whether he had recovered his daughter. The answer to this question did not arrive till late in the day, and was in the negative. Mr. Sherwin had not found his daughter. She had left the hospital before he got there, and no one could tell him whither she had gone. His language and manner, as he himself admitted, had been so violent that he was not allowed to enter the ward where Mannion lay. When he returned home, he found his wife at the point of death, and on the same evening she expired. Ralph described his letter as the letter of a man half out of his senses. He only mentioned his daughter to declare, in terms almost of fury, that he would accuse her before his wife's surviving relatives of having been the cause of her mother's death, and called down the most terrible denunciations on his own head if he ever spoke to his child again, though he should see her starving before him in the streets. In a postscript, Ralph informed me that he would call the next morning, and concert measures for tracking Sherwin's daughter to her present retreat. Every sentence in this letter bore warning of the crisis which was now close at hand, yet I had as little of the desire as of the power to prepare for it. A superstitious conviction that my actions were governed by a fatality which no human foresight could alter or avoid, began to strengthen within me. From this time forth, I awaited events with the uninquiring patience, the helpless resignation of despair. My brother came, punctual to his appointment. When he proposed that I should at once accompany him to the hospital, I never hesitated at doing as he desired. We reached our destination, and Ralph approached the gates to make his first inquiries. He was still speaking to the porter, when a gentleman advanced towards them on his way out of the hospital. I saw him recognise my brother, and heard Ralph exclaim, "'Bernard! Jack Bernard! Have you come to England, of all the men in the world?' "'Why not?' was the answer. "'I got every surgical testimonial the Hotel Dieu could give me six months ago, "'and couldn't afford to stay in Paris only for my pleasure. "'Do you remember calling me a mute, inglorious Liston long ago when we last met? "'Well, I've come to England to soar out of my obscurity "'and blaze into a shining light of the profession. "'Plenty of practice at the hospital here. "'Very little anywhere else, I am sorry to say.' "'You don't mean that you belong to this hospital. "'My dear fellow, I am regularly on the staff. "'I am here every day of my life. "'You're the very man to enlighten us. "'Here, Basil, cross over and let me introduce you "'to an old Paris friend of mine. "'Mr. Bernard, my brother. "'You've often heard me talk, Basil, "'of a younger son of old Sir William Bernard's, "'who preferred a cure of bodies to a cure of souls, "'and actually insisted on working in a hospital "'when he might have idled in a family living. "'This is the man.' the best of doctors and good fellows. "'Are you bringing your brother to the hospital to follow my mad example?' asked Mr. Bernard, as he shook hands with me. "'Not exactly, Jack, but we really have an object in coming here. Can you give us ten minutes' talk, somewhere in private? We want to know about one of your patients.' He led us into an empty room, on the ground floor of the building. "'Leave the matter in my hands,' whispered Ralph to me as we sat down. "'I'll find out everything.' "'Now, Bernard,' he said, "'You have a man here who calls himself Mr. Turner? "'Are you a friend of that mysterious patient? "'Wonderful! "'The students call him the Great Mystery of London, "'and I begin to think the students are right. 
Do you want to see him? When he has not got his green shade on, he's rather a startling sight, I can tell you, for unprofessional eyes. No, no, at least not at present. My brother here, not at all. The fact is, certain circumstances have happened which oblige us to look after this man, and which I am sure you won't inquire into when I tell you that it is our interest to keep them secret. Oh, certainly not. Then, without any more words about it, our object here to-day is to find out everything we can about Mr. Turner, and the people who have been to see him. Did a woman come, the day before yesterday? Yes, and behaved rather oddly, I believe. I was not here when she came, but was told she asked for Turner in a very agitated manner. She was directed to the Victoria Ward, where he is, and when she got there, looked excessively flurried and excited, seeing the ward quite full, and perhaps not being used to hospitals. However it was, though the nurse pointed out the right bed to her, she ran in a mighty hurry to the wrong one. "'I understand,' said Ralph, "'just as some women run into the wrong omnibus when the right one is straight before them.' "'Well, exactly.' "'Well, she only discovered her mistake, the room being rather dark, "'after she had stooped down close over the stranger, "'who was lying with his head away from her. "'By that time, the nurse was at her side and led her to the right bed. "'There, I am told, another scene happened. "'At sight of the patient's face, which is very frightfully disfigured, "'she was on the point, as the nurse thought, of going into a fit, "'but Turner stopped her in an instant. "'He just laid his hand on her arm and whispered something to her, and, though she turned as pale as ashes, she was quiet directly. The next thing they say he did was to give her a slip of paper, coolly directing her to go to the address written on it, and to come back to the hospital again, as soon as she could show a little more resolution. She went away at once, nobody knows where. Has nobody asked where? Yes, a fellow who said he was her father, and who behaved like a madman. He came here about an hour after she had left, and wouldn't believe that we knew nothing about her. How the deuce should we know anything? He threatened Turner, whom, by the by, he called Manning, or some such name, in such an outrageous manner that we were obliged to refuse him admission. Turner himself will give no information on the subject, but I suspect that his injuries are the result of a quarrel with the father about the daughter. A pretty savage quarrel, I must say, looking to the consequences. Oh, I beg your pardon, but your brother seems ill. I'm afraid, turning to me, you find the room rather close? "'No, indeed, not at all. I have just recovered from a serious illness. But pray, go on.' "'I have very little more to say. The father went away in a fury, just as he came. The daughter has not yet made her appearance a second time. But, after what was reported to me of the first interview, I dare say she will come. She must, if she wants to see Turner. He won't be out, I suspect, for another fortnight. He has been making himself worse by perpetually writing letters.' We were rather afraid of Erysipelas, but he'll get over that danger, I think. About the woman, said Ralph, it is of the greatest importance that we should know where she is now living. Is there any possibility, we will pay well for it, of getting some sharp fellow to follow her home from this place the next time she comes here? Mr. Bernard hesitated a moment, and considered. I think I can manage it for you with the porter, after you are gone, he said, provided you leave me free to give any remuneration I may think necessary. "'Anything in the world, my dear fellow. Have you got pen and ink? I'll write down my brother's address. You can communicate results to him as soon as they occur.' While Mr. Bernard went to the opposite end of the room in search of writing materials, Ralph whispered to me, "'If you wrote to my address, Mrs. Ralph might see the letter. She is the most amiable of her sex, but if written information of a woman's residence directed to me fell into her hands—' "'You understand, Basil. 
Besides, it will be easy to let me know the moment you hear from Jack. Look up, young one. It's all right. We are sailing with wind and tide. Here Mr. Bernard brought us pen and ink. While Ralph was writing my address, his friend said to me, I hope you will not suspect me of wishing to intrude on your secrets, if, assuming your interest in Turner to be the reverse of a friendly interest, I warn you to look sharply after him when he leaves the hospital. Either there has been madness in his family, or his brain has suffered from his external injuries. Legally, he may be quite fit to be at large, for he will be able to maintain the appearance of perfect self-possession in all the ordinary affairs of life. But morally, I am convinced that he is a dangerous monomaniac, his mania being connected with some fixed idea which evidently never leaves him day or night. I would lay a heavy wager that he dies in a prison or a madhouse. "'And I'll lay another wager, if he's mad enough to annoy us, that we are the people to shut him up,' said Ralph. "'There is the address. And now we needn't waste your time any longer. I have taken a little place at Brompton, Jack. You and Basil must come and dine with me as soon as the carpets are down.' We left the room. As we crossed the hall, a gentleman came forward and spoke to Mr. Bernard. "'That man's fever in the Victoria Ward has declared itself at last,' he said. "'This morning the new symptoms have appeared. "'And what do they indicate?' "'Typhus of the most malignant character, not a doubt of it. "'Come up and look at him.' "'I saw Mr. Bernard start, and glance quickly at my brother. "'Ralph fixed his eyes searchingly on his friend's face, exclaimed, "'Victoria Ward! Why, you mentioned that—' "'And then stopped, with a very strange and sudden alteration in his expression. "'The next moment he drew Mr. Bernard aside, saying, "'I want to ask you whether the bed in Victoria Ward, "'occupied by this man whose fever has turned to typhus, is the same bed, or near the bed, which... The rest of the sentence was lost to me as they walked away. After talking together in whispers for a few moments, they rejoined me. Mr. Bernard was explaining the different theories of infection to Ralph. "'My notion,' he said, "'is that infection is taken through the lungs. One breath inhaled from the infected atmosphere hanging immediately around the diseased person, and generally extending about a foot from him, being enough to communicate his malady to the breather.' provided there exists at the time in the individual exposed to catch the malady, a constitutional predisposition to infection. This predisposition we know to be greatly increased by mental agitation or bodily weakness. But in the case we have been talking of, he looked at me, the chances of infection or non-infection may be equally balanced. At any rate, I can predict nothing about them at this stage of the discovery. You will write the moment you hear anything, said Ralph, shaking hands with him. The very moment, I have your brother's address safe in my pocket. We separated. Ralph was unusually silent and serious on our way back. He took leave of me at the door of my lodging, very abruptly, without referring again to our visit to the hospital. A week passed away, and I heard nothing from Mr. Bernard. During this interval I saw little of my brother. He was occupied in moving into his new house. Towards the latter part of the week he came to inform me that he was about to leave London for a few days. My father had asked him to go to the family house in the country, on business connected with the local management of the estates. Ralph still retained all his old dislike of the steward's accounts and the lawyer's consultations, but he felt bound, out of gratitude for my father's special kindness to him since his return to England, to put a constraint on his own inclinations, and go to the country as he was desired. He did not expect to be absent more than two or three days, but earnestly charged me to write to him, if I had any news from the hospital while he was away. During the week, Clara came twice to see me, escaping from home by stealth as before. On each occasion, she showed the same affectionate anxiety to set me an example of cheerfulness, and to sustain me in hope. 
I saw, with a sorrow and apprehension which I could not altogether conceal from her, that the weary look in her face had never changed, never diminished since I had first observed it. Ralph had, from motives of delicacy, avoided increasing the hidden anxieties, which were but too evidently preying upon her health, by keeping her in perfect ignorance of our visit to the hospital, and, indeed, of the particulars of all our proceedings since his return. I took care to preserve the same secrecy during her short interviews with me. She bade me farewell after her third visit, with a sadness which she vainly endeavoured to hide. I little thought, then, that the tones of her sweet, clear voice had fallen on my ear for the last time, before I wandered to the far west of England where I now write. At the end of the week, it was on a Saturday, I remember, I left my lodgings early in the morning to go into the country, with no intention of returning before evening. I had felt a sense of oppression on rising which was almost unendurable. The perspiration stood thick on my forehead, though the day was not unusually hot. The air of London grew harder and harder to breathe with every minute. My heart felt tightened to bursting. My temples throbbed with fever fury. My very life seemed to depend on escaping into pure air, into some place where there was shade from trees, and water that ran cool and refreshing to look on. So I set forth, careless in what direction I went, and remained in the country all day. Evening was changing into night as I got back to London. I inquired of the servant at my lodging, when she let me in, whether any letter had arrived for me. She answered that one had come just after I had gone out in the morning, and that it was lying on my table. My first glance at it showed me Mr. Bernard's name written in the corner of the envelope. I eagerly opened the letter, and read these words. Private. Friday. My dear sir, on the enclosed slip of paper you will find the address of the young woman of whom your brother spoke to me when we met at the hospital. I regret to say that the circumstances under which I have obtained information of her residence are of the most melancholy nature. The plan which I arranged for discovering her abode, in accordance with your brother's suggestion, proved useless. The young woman never came to the hospital a second time. Her address was given to me this morning by Turner himself, who begged that I would visit her professionally, as he had no confidence in the medical man who was then in attendance on her. Many circumstances combined to make my compliance with his request anything but easy or desirable, but knowing that you, or your brother I ought, perhaps, rather to say, were interested in the young woman, I determined to take the very earliest opportunity of seeing her, and consulting with her medical attendant. I could not get to her till late in the afternoon— when I arrived, I found her suffering from one of the worst attacks of typhus I ever remember to have seen, and I think it my duty to state candidly that I believe her life to be in imminent danger. At the same time, it is right to inform you that the gentleman in attendance on her does not share my opinion. He still thinks there is a good chance of saving her. There can be no doubt whatever that she was infected with typhus at the hospital. You may remember my telling you how her agitation appeared to have deprived her of self-possession when she entered the ward and how she ran to the wrong bed, before the nurse could stop her. The man whom she thus mistook for Turner was suffering from fever which had not then specifically declared itself, but which did so declare itself as a typhus fever, on the morning when you and your brother came to the hospital. This man's disorder must have been infectious when the young woman stooped down close over him, under the impression that he was the person she had come to see. Although she started back at once on discovering her mistake, she had breathed the infection into her system, her mental agitation at the time accompanied, as I have since understood, by some physical weakness, rendering her specially liable to the danger to which she had accidentally exposed herself. Since the first symptoms of her disease appeared on Saturday last, I cannot find that any error has been committed in the medical treatment as reported to me. 
I remained some time by her bedside to-day, observing her. The delirium, which is more or less an invariable result of typhus, is particularly marked in her case, and manifests itself both by speech and gesture. It has been found impossible to quiet her by any means hitherto tried. While I was watching by her, she never ceased calling on your name and entreating to see you. I am informed by her medical attendant that her wanderings have almost invariably taken this direction for the last four-and-twenty hours. Occasionally she mixes other names with yours and mentions them in terms of abhorrence, but her persistency in calling for your presence is so remarkable that I am tempted, merely from what I have heard myself, to suggest that you really should go to her on the bare chance that you might exercise some tranquillizing influence. At the same time, if you fear infection, or for any private reasons into which I have neither the right nor the wish to inquire, feel unwilling to take the course I have pointed out, do not by any means consider it your duty to accede to my proposal. I can conscientiously assure you that duty is not involved in it. I have, however, another suggestion to make, which is of a positive nature, and which I am sure will meet with your approval. It is that her parents, or some of her other relations, if her parents are not alive, should be informed of her situation. Possibly you may know something of her connections, and can therefore do this good office. She is dying in a strange place, among people who avoid her as they would avoid a pestilence. Even though it be only to bury her, some relation ought to be immediately summoned to her bedside. I shall visit her twice to-morrow, in the morning and at night. If you are not willing to risk seeing her, and I repeat that it is in no sense imperative that you should combat such unwillingness, perhaps you will communicate with me at my private address. I remain, dear sir, faithfully yours, John Bernard. P.S. I open my letter again to inform you that Turner, acting against all advice, has left the hospital to-day. He attempted to go on Tuesday last, when I believe he first received information of the young woman's serious illness, but was seized with a violent attack of giddiness on attempting to walk, and fell down just outside the door of the ward. On this second occasion, however, he has succeeded in getting away without any accident, as far, at least, as the persons employed about the hospital can tell. End of Part 3 Chapter 7 Part 1